This is the Santita Jackson Show. Everybody. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. It's Tuesday, December 19th. Where did 2023 go? I'm Santita Jackson here on WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. I want you to meet my morning stars momentarily. I'll be up to you guys in just a few minutes. Uh, as we talk about uh, these press reports that are coming out now about President Biden being frustrated with his White House staff because of his poll numbers. And I want to know what do you think is going on there? What is it his staff's fault? Is it his fault? I think we need to get, put some analysis into this uh, because 2024 is here. We're a month away from New Hampshire. We're a month away from uh from the Iowa caucuses, a little under five weeks. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, four years later, here we are. We're still talking about January 6th. Oh, no, darling, that's behind us. Well, it's certainly with us, but my point is it is a new election cycle. I mean, the Congress is up for re-election. I mean, your representatives. I mean, and so it's just it's a whole lot that you need to be looking at right now. Uh, and everyone looks at that great horse race called the presidential race. And so we're going to be talking about that. And I cannot wait to hear from you. Of course, John Nichols will be talking about that. And uh, as we look at the unions that are pushing for ceasefire, that are pushing for ceasefire, it's not just happening in the United States, it's happening all around the world. You know, when you load and unload uh, materials from said area, uh, a lot of unions are pushing back and union workers are pushing back on what's happening to Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. So we've got a lot to talk about today on the Santita Jackson Show. Of course, we cannot wait to hear from Dr. Shanina Knight and Pastor Stephen Thurston of the New Covenant Missionary Baptist Church. Let's get some, some of these headlines out the way so we can get on with the show. Pope Francis will allow Catholic priests to bless same-sex couples. The Vatican approved the blessings yesterday, but said they must be kept separate from marriage. It largely reverses a ban that was formalized in 2021. The Catholic Church, which has 1.3 billion adherents around the world, has previously said that any nod to same-sex unions would be tantamount to blessing sin. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill allowing police to arrest migrants. Hmm. The legislation signed yesterday gives state police the power to arrest migrants suspected of entering Texas illegally. It is expected to go into force in March. Abbott, a Republican, has increasingly taken strict measures to stop illegal immigration. This law will probably set up another legal battle with the Biden administration. An earthquake in northwestern China has killed at least 116 people. Of course, our love, well, it is with them today. And Marvel actor Jonathan Majors was found guilty in a domestic abuse case. And he's been pulled, put out of the Marvel franchise. He is paying a heavy, heavy price. Marvel Studios dropped him, who played a prominent role as... Kang in its recent movies and shows. Sentencing is scheduled for 
February, tens of, a mil- tens of millions of Americans will get a payout from Google. Why? Because Google is shelling out $700 million to settle an antitrust lawsuit brought by state prosecutors over the high fees it charges app developers. A court filing said yesterday. So, you know, let's... Wow. Does that apply to any of you? Pastor Stephen Thurston, what about you? <laughs> does, it, does, it, does it apply to you? You going to get some Google money? I might oh, okay. be able to get a few dollars. Oh, okay. Get that app. Well, then you had to have done it already. Oh, okay. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you and um, and Happy New Year. You know, before you begin, just very quickly, what is the, what is the significance of Christmas? Because my parents were always very, very... Uh, very firm about us not putting the X in Mass. My mother said, we know who Christ is, and this is our Savior, and this is the Mass of Christ. This is Jesus' birthday. And my parents ultimately have treated this as a religious holiday, even as it was becoming increasingly secularized. You know, um, we started, you know, well, we had been going to the Cook County Jail and to prisons and to mental institutions since, oh, please, I can't remember not doing that over the Christmas holidays. Yeah. Um, and and serving food during the holidays. Uh, my father even yeah. stood in a food line when his scholarship at his scholarship money at the University of Chicago ran out. Reverend Evans pulled him out of the line, but my father wasn't ashamed to do that. He and my mother were doing everything they could with three children under two. So the meaning of Christmas, real quick. I mean, is it a secular holiday? It's been secularized, or is it truly a religious holiday? I believe it's truly a religious holiday. It's the day that we set aside to honor and to celebrate the birth of Christ. We recognize historically that this is not his actual birthday, uh, yet and still we we pause just to, just to appreciate the fact that Jesus was born. And we take this time to honor the lives of other people. Uh, it's just something special about this time of the year. It's like peace and joy rest on people who are normally not peaceful and joyful. <laughs> we just got to get energized in a different kind of way to be kind, to be loving. It, it bothers me that it only lasts for a quick minute. It's like, why can't we be like this always to all people? But nonetheless, we take advantage and enjoy this moment where people just seem to be engaging as humans with a level of humanity uh, that's loving, caring, and kind. And so we wrap all of that into this, and we recognize that capitalism has taken over and secularized this day, as you stated. Um, But we know the essence of this day is about love. As love was given to us and born, we, we express that to other people in our lived experiences. Give us the good news. I need that. Thank you for beginning that way. It helps yeah. to frame all that we're talking about. Sure thing. Well, the good news today is that love still exists, and it can exist within the context of any relationship that you have. I know coming to the end of the year, things may have been difficult for you, especially in the relationship realm. This may be the year of divorce for you, separation, breakup, all of that, but love can still exist. I'm reflective of back when, you know, we used to like actually flip through the newspaper and not a digitized version of it. I recall seeing a cartoon that caught my eye at an early age and I did a little research 
and I discovered that in the 1960s, Kim Casale, a New England cartoonist, created a comic strip that many of us have become familiar with. It originated as a series of love notes Kim created for her future husband, and that strip caught on and became began appearing in newspapers around the globe in the 1970s. And for about 60 years or so, the work of Kim Kafali has reminded humanity of what love is. You know, that little cartoon with the two, with that couple, the man and the female, and it says love is and has a quick quote. That's what I'm referring to. But for those who have read the Bible, you're familiar with the Bible, you've gotten married within a Christian context, 1 Corinthians 13 does the same thing as it paints a vivid picture of what love is, what love does, and what love looks like. And though the sentiments of this text are often shared, and I do it a lot in wedding ceremonies as a pastor, and it's often agreed upon by both the bride and the groom, when turbulence strikes the relationship and crisis creeps in, love and its attributes and manifestations seemingly engage us in the destructive game of hide and go seek. But the good news is that reconciliation is possible. Will it require work? Yes. But here's the good news. It's still possible. And if reconciliation is what you desire, if you want your marriage or your relationship back on track, if you desire to right the wrongs that have taken place in your relationship, allow me to suggest a few practical ways in which you can begin to communicate love courteously and constructively. Number one, through patience. Your relationship didn't fall apart overnight, and guess what? You're not going to rebuild it in a day or two. As humans, we operate best when we're free. So I want you to resist the urge to set legalistic time frames on yourself or your significant other. If separation has occurred in the relationship, you want your partner to come back on their own volition, not because they felt forced to. And you want to express your desires and then step back and let them make the decision for themselves. Additionally, you've got to be patient with your partner's ambivalence and understand that emotions are pulling both of you in two different directions. And sometimes they're with it. Sometimes they're not ready. And I don't want you to think that they're lying to you or they're even bipolar. They're just expressing their feelings in that particular moment. And I get it. To you, it seems like they're contradicting themselves. But you've got to express understanding and engage patience as they navigate feelings and emotions based upon what's occurred in the relationship. Not only must there be patience, but we can express our love through kindness. This word translated means to be useful or beneficial. Thus, kindness may be words or actions that are useful or beneficial to your partner. What can you say or do that will that will benefit them? If you don't do it, guess what? Somebody else might, and you may have missed out on an opportunity to express love through kindness. So if you're in crisis, I get it. Most of your conversation is probably going to be destructive, and I want you to move past this place, and you can do it through kindness. Warm emotions can be reborn in the relationship, but kind words and acts must precede those warm emotions. The next piece that I want you to engage in is humility. Look, it's easy to look back over the relationship and announce all of your righteous acts while you're overlooking all of your weaknesses. I'm talking to the narcissist here. <laughs> all the I talk, it may be true, but it's not loving. Love will refuse to proclaim its own goodness. 
You can next express your love through courtesy. Listen, you don't have to treat each other rudely simply because you're separated or in this place of crisis. Sure, discuss the issues, but don't attack each other in the process. How did you treat them to get them? I want you to reflect back on that. That's what you got to return to. If you are all loving and kind and giving compliments and buying roses and doing sweet stuff, get back to doing that if you want to get this thing back on the right track. Forgetting. Oh, this is a good one, Santita. Replaying every event that hurt repeatedly is destructive and useless. I want you to perform an autopsy on the situation, but don't keep exhuming the body. No positive purpose is served by bringing up the details over and over and over again. Moving past the past is key. It's the key that opens up the future and brings reconciliation between you and your partner. I get it. You've been wronged. But remember, you've also wronged at some point in a relationship, too. So we've got to move to the point of forgiving and, to some degree, forgetting. Finally, trust. Trust is an essential ingredient to unity. Can it be reborn? Yes, if integrity is reborn. Trust dies and integrity dies. Trust wasn't destroyed overnight, so again, don't expect it to be reborn overnight. Trust will be regained upon a record of integrity. So invite your significant other to investigate your behavior. And when they see your words and your actions are aligning, that's when trust will begin to grow. Love is always hopeful. Love your significant other in spite of what's occurred. Start listening more instead of talking. Start asking instead of demanding. And seek to understand instead of seeking to get your way. Love can be returned. You can be reconciled. And you can get that relationship trained back on its track. And I believe you can close out the end of the year on the good foot <laughs> as it relates to your relationship. Just keep loving and loving in the right way. I love that. I love that. I love that. You know, because we nurse the hurt, right? Oh, yeah. It's like you, you want to get to the healing. And you won't. It's like, when are you going to let this thing go? I mean, and then you, <laughs> then you get upset when folks go, I am out. Yeah. My middle name can't be mf <laughs> my language. I mean, no, no. I mean, because you know, you know. Come on. Yeah. That's that's how yeah, we that's live, right. right? You guys and yeah. everybody, you know, you, we gotta stop. At some point, that's why you have. That's why the, what's happening in the Middle East is so critical for all of us. It's a ceasefire. I don't care. I don't care where the hurt began. So now everybody got to stop shooting. That's right. I didn't say shooting. I said shooting. Stop. <laughs> you got to stop. Because if yes, you ma'am. don't, it's just, it's never going to stop. Going Pastor to stop. Thurston, yeah. will you be doing your Facebook Live at 3 o'clock, oh, 3 o'clock Central Time this week on Friday? I will. 3 o'clock Central Time, Stephen Thurston, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Stephen Thurston on Facebook. We'll be diving into leadership. We've been in the relationship space the past few weeks, but we'll give you some leadership hints and tips this Friday uh, to help you grow in that space. The ultimate goal with Mirror Moments is to help you to change what's within so that you can change what's around and become a better version of yourself. I love it. I love it. And you will be with us 
Will you be in Chicago during the holidays? I mean, will you be preaching I'll, at New Covenant this weekend? I will. I will. New Covenant Missionary Baptist Church on 77 of Goddess Grove. You can catch us on all of our social media platforms. Our worship is at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. We're done by 10.15. So pull up in person or log in online. We would love to have you with us. Pastor Stephen Thurston, everybody. Coming up, Dr. Shanina Knighton, if she can stay with us for just a few more minutes. We can talk about infection prevention and being healthful through this holiday season. But boy, is there a tie between the mind and the body and our uh, and our health. You know, as a man thinketh, so is he. Oh, I think I said a little something, but I'm not a pastor. Pastor Stephen Thurston. Wow, I love, <laughs> <laughs> I love you so much. Give my love to your mom and dad. Well, my do. uncle love you. and auntie. There you go. Love it. <laughs> We go back a long way. (laughs) Stay right here, everybody, on the Santita Jackson Show. Let's talk about President Biden becoming, well, becoming angry with his staff. He's frustrated with them. He said, look at my poll numbers. What are you doing? Okay, you tell me. What's going on? (laughs) 773-763-9278. 773-763-WCPT. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. As we talk about President Biden and his reported frustrations with his White House staff about his low poll numbers. Before we get there, we're running just a little over today, but I've got Dr. Shanita Knighton with us, world-renowned infection preventionist, college lecturer, wife, mom, someone who is keeping her kids well. That's right, which is so hard to do. How you doing, Dr. Knighton? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I am doing well, Dr. Doctor. So talk to me. What do you want to know in this in this season where everybody, people don't want a mask? And you know what? I'm not going to lie. I don't either, um, except for when I'm on a plane and in these really crowded spaces. But um, what do you want us to know? I want to talk about briefly um, the topic of, and I know, like, we, of course, are dealing with, like, let's say all of this rain and all of this snow, but just, like, wetness, like, just in general. Mm-hmm. And so many people don't understand, but when you have, and I'm going to start specifically with hands, but I would really like to talk about laundry, okay? Ooh. So yeah. bacteria, the transmission of bacteria is more likely to occur from wet skin than dry skin, which is why proper drying of the hands after washing has to be an important part of the um, process, okay? And while I understand, like, some people like to hurry up, wash their hands real quick, and those 20 to 25 seconds matter. But if you're not drying them, like I've seen people wash them real quick, turn the water off, and then shake them out, and then walk out of the bathroom, and then just say that their hands are dry in the air, that's the worst way to pick up bacteria because your hands are most vulnerable at that point for things to be able to stick to them um, and transmit to them. So it's very important 
that in order for you to remove bacteria effectively and have less contamination, you should dry your hands properly. It is also recommended that you dry your hands using single-use paper towels opposed to using the actual hand dryers in the Mm -hmm. restroom. Those electronic dryers actually harbor bacteria. Many people don't want to talk about it because they're convenient, but they actually end up sucking up a lot of germs in them. Um, They're very rarely cleaned in regards to, like, the ones that you have to put your hands inside of. So if you have a choice between using paper towels to dry your hands and the convenience of an electronic machine, remember your hands when wet can harbor bacteria, so it's important for you to use the dry ones. Similarly with clothes, um, as many know, I love working out, love working out, love working out. But just reminding people that, you know, infections, talking about like let's say like bacteria just in itself, Many people, like, if, like, let's say their clothes are moist because they just finished washing them. Like, you want the bacteria to all come off of your clothes. But that may not necessarily be the case even after you wash them. But it's even worse when you come in from a gym and let's say have gym clothes and you put the gym clothes, let's say, either in the hamper or you don't let them sit out and, like, air dry before putting them in the hamper. They can actually harbor bacteria, and so we're talking about um, things such as what we'll find in foods. You know how they're talking about outbreaks with E. coli and salmonella and, like, even staph? You can find some of those germs inside of your clothing if you do not let them dry properly. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Do you need to clean out the—do you need to wash the wash the, the washing machine? Yes, and that right there, I'm laughing because it's not my area of expertise, but I'm standing next to the expert right now. Um, but sanitizing your, the, like, the drums of the actual washing machines is important. I've witnessed and have seen them, like, let's say, collect mold. Um, I've seen, like, let's say, dirt that's around the top rim of them for some of the top loaders. And so I actually make sure that I physically clean around that area because I see that it collects dust. But I also utilize the sanitation cycles that are on the machines as well. And people should know that they actually have them on there for a reason. Most machines come with a manual that actually tells you how often you should be sanitizing those machines. Well, no one's reading that. But you keep reminding us that we should. I try to at least do once. I at least do, for me, I know and it might be maybe not enough, but I do uh, once a month. Oh, okay. Thank you for making me feel so good. But, you know, I really I do clean out my machine and my dishwasher and things like that. But, you know, I grew up with a grandmother who was a germaphobe. She worked in the hospital, and she felt that everything was nasty. So there you go. And I guess, you know, she was right. Things are not sanitized. And that was, she was on the cutting edge of that more than a half a century ago. Thank you, Grandmother Gertrude. You were, it turns out, she was right. But, you know, for us, you know, particularly, you know, in the black community, you always heard cleanliness is next to godliness. So poverty was never the excuse not to be clean, right? So you were always... You walk into a house, and even the most humble home, you can eat off the floor because no one played that. 
So um, sending you so much love, Dr. Shanina Knighton. Hey, Dr. Nina, H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A, H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A. That's her handle on social media, at H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A. Thank you for being with us today. You can hang, in, hang, hang out and listen to us because that's what she does. She doesn't hang up anybody. She, she, she listens to the rest of the show. And I'm flattered by that. I love it. Dr. Shanita Knighton, world-renowned, world-renowned um, infection preventionist and registered nurse. You know, let's, let me tell you a little story. I was reading this article. You know, I love to read. And um, I had to, had to have someone read it to me because you know everybody. I've been had, had an eye procedure and I've been recovering. Uh, but, oh, boy, after a point, I had to pull this thing right up on my nose so I could read this, which is what I'm about to do right now. From the Washington Post, the headline says, Biden said to be increasingly frustrated by dismal poll numbers uh, by Tyler Pager. The night before President Biden departed Washington to celebrate Thanksgiving on Nantucket, Massachusetts, he gathered his closest aides for a meeting in the White House residence. After pardoning a pair of turkeys, an annual White House tradition, Biden delivered some stern words for the small group assembled. His poll numbers were unacceptably low, and he wanted to know what his team and his campaign were doing about it. He come. Uh, he, he should be more crazy because I know one of them is. Oh, sorry about oh, that. Oh wait a minute! No, that's all right, honey. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute. He complained that his economic message had done little to move the ball even as the economy was growing and unemployment was falling. According to people familiar with his comments, who spoke on the condition, of course, of anonymity. For months, the president and his first lady, Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, have told aides and friends they are frustrated by the president's less less than stellar approval rating. And on and on and on it went. But can you imagine? I know the staff were horrified. They went in there, you know, and... Of course, they're the big cheese. They're called in at the White House to go and sit with the president, and he gives them a stern rebuke. He is like, what is up with my poll numbers? Well, the poll numbers, clearly not. What is going on? And they said he's growing increasingly frustrated, and I think we need to dig down deep on this. Uh, Attorney Daryl Jones, chairman of the Transformative Justice Coalition, brilliant civil rights and voting rights attorney. Uh, Leslie Williams. Of course, from Jewish Voice for Peace. And, um, of course, I met you through our brothers and sisters at If Not Now. I'm so glad that you're with us today once again. Um, And, of course, let me start with you, Dr. David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona. You know, because I think that this, uh, his tough time with the polls did not begin uh, recently. I mean, I mean, let's go back four years. Four years ago, right now, people were asking him to get out the race because he was not a strong candidate. And he remained a lackluster, not strong candidate. Uh, you know, it's just that when we got to the fall, we said it's him or Trump. So, uh. and it seems like he's never been able to get his footing. Or am I misreading this, Dr. Gibbs? I think there are a lot of reasons that he's unpopular. Um, one is, as you said, he's really not that, never been that strong or charismatic a candidate. Um, and he was accepted, I think, at the last moment by the party just because they made a cold calculation that he was the only one who could block Bernie Sanders from being the nominee, who was, I think, the most likely to be the nominee had the party not drawn together and decided on Biden. And so, uh, you know, you have a, a figure who's fundamentally just not 
really that, that popular. It never has been that popular. But I think the more significant variable here is the state of the economy. And um, even though Biden and uh, you know figures in the press like Paul Krugman, who increasingly are acting as shills for Biden, even as they say the economy is great, uh, it's really not that great. If you look at the numbers on wages, on compensation, it's, it's tracking below the rate of inflation. Um, you know, inflation has come down, but what you've had is a large amount of inflation in the first years of the Biden presidency, even if it's now come down. And, um, you know, that eroded living standards for people. And it, uh, you know, living standards haven't recovered. And, and people notice that. People notice that your living standards are not what they were five years ago. Um, and, you know, it is a fact that pe- most people see their living standards as having been better under Trump. Now, I think Trump got lucky in that respect. I don't think that was any extraordinary competence on his part. But nevertheless, that's what voters look at. They look at, you know, we were better off under Trump than we are under Biden, and, and our, our situation economically has gotten worse under Biden. Um, you know, that's true of everybody. Everybody works for a living. Everybody who's not really affluent and has accumulated wealth, they're very worried about living standards. And I think, you know, pundits and academics sometimes forget about that detail, but that's the reality for most people. Uh, and I, I, So I think that's, that's the basic problem for Biden is the economy. In 1992, Bill Clinton, when he was running for president the first time, he had in his campaign headquarters a poster, I think James Carville put it up, that said, it's the economy, stupid, meaning that that's what people are most worried about, is the economy. And I, I think what many people who study election polls have concluded is that it's always the economy, stupid. That's what people are really concerned about, first and foremost, is the economy. And so I think that's what's really weighing upon Biden's credibility here, more than any other factor. I think another factor I would add is the perception that he's been something of a disaster in foreign policy. Um, now, generally speaking, um, you know, the, again, the Democratic perception, uh, the perception of people in the Democratic National Committee and the reality, I think, are very much out of kilter here. The Democratic elite believe that Biden's been a great success in foreign policy. But if you look at his record, if you look at the record of his decline of popularity, the real turning point was the U.S. departure, the disastrous U.S. departure from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And that created a perception of incompetence and inability um, you know, if you look at the videos of the U.S. departure from Afghanistan, they look awful. It looks like the U.S. defeat in Vietnam, the U.S. departure from Saigon in 1995. Mm-hmm. And that was not a good look, and that was not a good reality. And I think that the uh, you know, war in Ukraine, uh, the American decision to go to the mat, so to speak, in terms of defeating Russia, which has gone very badly indeed, that also has not helped Biden. The war in the Middle East and the U.S. unquestioning support for Israel has not helped Biden. But I think on so many factors, basically, there's a perception that Biden has performed poorly as a president. And one could make an argument that objectively he has performed poorly as a president. And I think that's why he's not very popular. Hmm. And, you know, others are saying this massive hit that he has taken, as you just said, uh, Dr. Gibbs, in foreign policy, particularly as it relates to, oh, most acutely, the Middle East. I mean, there are all kinds of nicknames for him, Genocide Joe and things like that. I mean, it's it's painful to hear. Um, Well, it's painful that we have about 20,000 dead Palestinians since October 7th, not to mention those who are under the rubble. So, you know, let me ask you, Leslie Williams, I mean, Dr. Leslie... <laughs> no, examine, not a this, examine this patient. 
<laughs> well, I mean, because um, these stern words, you can imagine being at the White House. Yeah. The closest people get called in, so you know. You're the big people in the White House. Look, even the mess hall in the White House is like a luxury restaurant, everybody. When you are at the White House, you are at the apex. And so when the president calls you, you are at the apex. He calls you in and reads you the riot act. Well, you know, I've got to say that I find that kind of amusing since we now know that many of Biden staffers as well as congressional staffers and members of the Department of Homeland Security and many other agencies have been telling him for the past two months that his policy in Gaza is misguided and that he is ignoring the will of the people by continuing to single-handedly support Israel. So I don't think he should be blaming his, his staff. I mean, I think he should be looking at his own actions and his own unwillingness to acknowledge that a significant portion of the American public thinks that what he is doing in Gaza is terrible. Um, we know there are polls showing that um, over 60% of the American public want there to be a ceasefire. But I think um, particularly in terms of Biden's base, and I am not a political expert, so I will yield to the other people on your panel who are on that. But we know, for example, that last month the black Christian faith leaders took out a full-page ad in the New York Times pushing for a ceasefire in Gaza, and that had 900 black Christian faith leaders on it representing black churches around the country. And we know that the Black Church PAC uh, has said that their endorsement of Biden was contingent on promises that they feel he has not kept, such as the failure to pass the federal voting rights bill and the failure to pass the George Floyd Floyd Justice and Policing Act. So with those other broken promises, and now this refusal to acknowledge the human rights disaster that he is really promoting in Gaza, he is at risk of losing the black vote, certainly the young black vote. Um, College students, both black and non-black college students, overwhelmingly support ending uh, the war in Gaza. Of all of the protests that have been held, the pro-Palestinian protests that have been held since October, 28% of those, over 650 protests have been on college campuses. And we've seen a lot of them at HBCUs. There are major ones at Howard, for example. Um, And a lot of... (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. My school. My school. (laughs) Howard University. That's my Yeah, go ahead. No, that's my spot. I just Um, had to give give love to Howard University. I had to give it it love. So we're seeing that um, some of his key constituencies, African-Americans, young people, and of course, Arab-Americans, are extremely distressed by this. And you're hearing more and more of those people saying that they cannot bring themselves to vote for Biden next year. Now, you know, we've got over 10 months before the election, and it's quite possible that people will make the calculation that as much as they dislike Biden, uh, they're going to vote for Trump. But he had some pretty narrow margins in places like Michigan. And given the large numbers of Arab-American voters and black voters in some of those swing states, I think that if he doesn't make an about-face on his Gaza policy, he could risk having some of those voters simply not go to the polls or simply not vote for president next year. Well, you know, I have to give you a little bit of pushback. I think you have excellent analysis. Mm -hmm. When you say that you're not an expert, you become an expert when you get in that polling booth. So I think we need to stop selling. No, we need to stop selling ourselves short. 
Because Leslie, Daryl, Dr. Gibbs, you know how yes. you feel. You know what you believe when you go to that polling booth. I was just reading an NBC News story uh, late last night, early this morning. You know, about the, they were talking to young people. They said, you know what? Game changer. What he's done in the Middle East, I cannot vote for him. Does that mean I'm going to sit home? No, it means I'm not going to vote for him. I mean, people are saying that. And I heard more, I've heard more and more young people say, I'm not going to continue to reward the Democratic Party when you don't do what I ask you to do, what I sent you to do. So, no. People keep saying, oh, they're going to sit home, they're not going to do anything. Oh, no, 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 no. You're going to see protests happen in a whole different way, Leslie. Because yep, I think that's true. You know, because the people behind us have another view. They're like, freedom, you know, what did um, Chris Christopherson wrote in me and Bobby McGee? Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. That's real. Yeah. Well, I think also yes. choosing not to vote is, for some people, a choice. Um, you know, for a very long time, the Democratic Party has taken black voters for granted. has really taken um, people of color for granted. Um, but if you feel that you know you're you you're, you can't choose the Republican Party for obvious reasons, but then you feel that the Democratic Party isn't doing any better, you can make the choice to say I'm not going to support either of you, and that is a choice. So I don't think staying home is necessarily a sign of laziness or apathy. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it can be a principled way of saying I cannot support either of these regimes because in terms of what they're doing for people of color, what they're doing for marginalized people, including for Palestinians, they're the same. And we know that the Democratic and Republican parties have been completely in lockstep over supporting Israel for decades. But I think, you know, the the brutality of this assault on Gaza, the fact that you're seeing so much of it in people's social media fields, feeds on TikTok, on Instagram, is really bringing home to people just how brutal and inhumane the occupation of Palestine has always been. Uh, so there are a lot of young people who are really um, waking up to that, who are going to be voting, who are registering to vote. Uh, and, of course, a lot of young Jewish people, you know, the people that are in Jewish Voice for Peace, and if not now, who are also very active voters. So I think this is a major concern for Biden and the Democratic Party and that he needs to address it. Well, Daryl Jones, what do you say? I mean, because you and Barbara Arnwine are our foremost voting rights advocates. And I think people are going to vote. I just don't know which way they're going to go. Because they are very, they are quite upset. Attorney Daryl Jones. And, and good morning, Cynthia. You know, I agree with both uh, Dr. Gibbs as well as uh, what Leslie Williams and I have been laying out with regards to, you know, particularly the young folks or young voters and, uh, and where they stand. Uh, you got to remember that, you know, the young voters really were a large part of what put President Biden uh, in office. And he was not necessarily their first choice. He was their best alternative. And so when you come in, you know, as the best alternative and not the first choice, you know, the, the, uh, the expectations of you are going to be high. Because, you know, they know that the, you're a compromised president. That's why they're voting for you. You are better than the alternative. We didn't necessarily care for all of your policies, 
but we, you know, we're going to buy and, and invest in the fact that you're going to carry forward knowing that we're voting for you, that you're going to uh, invest in, and stand for some of the issues for which we, uh, for which, you know, the young voters stand. And I think that, you know, when you're coming in uh, with that type of, uh, uh, that type of baggage, if you will, that type of understanding that you're not necessarily their first choice, and then you throw them into this Ukraine and, and the Gaza Strip issue where you're going directly against their interests. That's a lot for, for, uh, for young voters to absorb. You know, uh, the question is, where are you on justice and policing on the George Floyd Act? It's not there. So mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're seeing all these shortages of what they wanted from you, and they're not receiving them, and you're not their first choice anyway. So, you know, that's part of what uh, the administration uh, is facing. And then you know, when you layer onto that, when you go beyond just young voters, when you layer onto that, that what is it, some 76% of the Democrats support the ceasefire and he's against it? 61% of likely voters overall support the ceasefire and the president has, has, has really staked out this position, has wedded himself to, uh, to, to, to uh, the Israeli government with regards to you know, not supporting the ceasefire. That's problematic. Wait a minute, That's to the right-wing Israeli government. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, to you know, to, right to that far-right Netanyahu. That. Mm-hmm. So you have all of this that's in play. And then you throw on that, uh, on top of that, you know, this whole Hunter Biden thing, whether, whether or not there's any you know, merit to it or not. Uh, this is yet another layer of, of questions, of problems, of issues that are existing for the existing president. So for the poll numbers to be low at this point, they're low for, I believe, those reasons. Perhaps they'll turn around uh, as things, uh, you know, begin to shake out a little more and uh, it, it becomes very real as to who the two candidates are or, or very actualized as to who the two candidates are. But right now, the poll numbers are reflecting how people are feeling about the administration. And that's accepting the positive things that have occurred from this administration, meaning accepting their fight for the uh, for the loan forgiveness for student debt, accepting the uh, appointment of Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, accepting all those positive things, uh, HBCU funding being at an all time high, accepting all those things, these core policies that these young folks and other voters stand for, they remain problematic for this president at this point in time, Cynthia. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Dr. Gibbs, I've got about a minute here. It turns out that the United Nations has a ceasefire resolution that that the United States is trying to weaken. I'm like, mm-hmm. are they tone deaf? I mean, they, they yeah. want they object to the proposed call for quote an urgent and sustainable cessation of hostilities. What are they do? What are they thinking? Dr. Gibbs, one minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, there's an extraordinary rigidity on U.S. policy toward Israel that, um, you know, the United States is going to fund. And again, I I keep emphasizing this, that since 1971, the U.S. has funded the Israeli military to the tune of several billion dollars a year, um, every year. It's, you know, one of the biggest, maybe the biggest foreign aid program in history. And um, they do it no matter what Israel does. And, you know, in public, the United States has this fig leaf. The U.S. is critical of Israel uh, in terms of its disproportionate 
you know, bombing of civilians, the horrific effects of these bombings of civilians that are taking place in Gaza, the nearly 20,000 people killed, all the children killed. You know, these are mildly criticized by American officials, but they never do anything about it. They don't say to Israel, um, you know, you either stop doing this or we will cut your aid off. They don't do that. Or they don't just cut their aid off, which is what they should do, in my view. Um, and so there's really no... Um, there's really no sense of the United States um, ha- having any accountability with with regard to the policy in the Middle East or Israel being forced to have accountability. And the result is the horrific results that we're seeing now in Gaza, which seem to be going on and on. And this is blocking any any effort to ameliorate those horrific results. Uh, they're blocking the ceasefire, effectively. And uh, yes, and that contributes also, I think, to Biden, the perception that Biden is going to be very weakened among young people who do not appreciate these kinds of things. Well, you know, I want to hear what your thoughts are. Call us at Dynamo Dave. I'm going to get to you. 773-763-9278. Let's talk about it. 773-763-WCPT. Please put Rainbow Push under your Christmas tree. Help us as we seek to help you, everybody. Call us at 773-FREEDOM. In the meantime, call me right now at 773-WCPT. Let's talk about President Biden's poll numbers. He might not be putting a public face on this, but he's very, very concerned, and he is on his staff's back to make things right. But do they have the power to do that? Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show, Tuesday, October. Goodness gracious, it's December 19th, 2023. Sending you so much love today. Uh, Hey, everybody, we're talking about President Biden's polling numbers and why. Uh, Well, actually, he is this Washington Post article and many articles are derived from it in which they said, you know, just after he pardoned the turkeys, he pulled his closest aides into his office and said, hey, what are you doing? Why are my poll numbers so low? And so we've been trying to tease out with Leslie Williams from Jewish Voice for Peace and Dr. David Gibbs, historian from the University of Arizona and the chair of the, of the Transformative Justice Coalition, uh, attorney Daryl Jones. Just why, 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 why we're looking at what we're looking at. So I want you to call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Let's talk about this, um, because now you have young people who are saying, there's, I, there, is no, there, is, there is no way that I'm going to vote for him. No way I'm going to vote for him, not just because of the Middle East, but because of the voting rights that have not been protected, but because of the justice and policing so much. And I just in my 20s am I'm not wedded to either party. See, that's what we don't miss that about these young people. They're wedded to an American that they want to see, not an American that already is. They are in another space. So I want you to call me at 773-763-9278. Let me know what you're thinking. What, let me know what you're thinking. They're not afraid of whoever comes up, whoever wins in 2024, because they know they're going to have to hit the streets anyway. 
let's just get to some of these headlines so we can get to the rest of this show, everybody. Call me, though, at 773-763-9278. I want to hear your thoughts. Pope Francis will allow Catholic priests to to bless same-sex couples. The Vatican approved the blessings yesterday, but said they must be kept separate from marriage. It largely reverses a ban that was trans... that was formalized. In 2021, the Catholic Church, which has 1.3 billion adherents all around the world, has previously said that any nod in the same uh, two same-sex, same-sex unions would be tantamount to blessing sin. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill allowing police to arrest migrants. An earthquake in northwestern China has killed at least 116 people, everybody, praying for our brothers and sisters in China. And Marvel star John Majors was found guilty in a domestic abuse crisis. The Marvel franchise has all Ready, drop him. In Chicago, we'll have a high of 32 degrees. Winter is here, everybody. Ooh. And it is sunny outside and will be today. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 36 degrees, partly sunny. In the NFL, what a game last night. If you missed that finish, you missed something else. Seahawks 20, uh, the Eagles 17. Oh, my gosh. What a game, what a game, what a game. In the NBA, the Bulls 108, the 76ers 104, and the Timberwolves 112, and the Heat 108. In the NHL, the Avalanche will be playing Chicago, and the Penguins were triumphant over the Wild 4-3. Those are just some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. Everybody, if you want to own a home, Team Hochberg is giving you a new opportunity. It is cost prohibitive to own a home, to, to buy a home in, in the United States today. In 99% of the counties all across the country, people cannot afford to buy a home. Can you imagine? Absolutely. So Team Hochberg has come up with something because they said, you know, pulling together 20% of $200,000, $300,000, even $100,000 is a whole lot to ask of people today. So they've come up with a program. Um, It's not 20% that you need to pull together, not even 10, not even 5, but 1%. Can you imagine only needing 1% to buy a home? Yeah, to make the down payment and no private mortgage insurance. I want you to call Team Hochberg at 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID, or go to 56david.com and find out what this program is about. Tell your coworkers, everyone within the sound of my voice on this on this radio station, NAM 950 Radio, I want you to call 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID, and find out about this program. Not 20%. Not 10%, not even 5 1%. That is all you would need to pull together if you qualify for this program. And guess what? You might even have a credit score that's low. Okay, that can happen. They have a secured credit card that you can buy that you, you load money onto it every month. And if you pay the bill at the end of the month, slowly and steadily over the next year, you will see over the next months, you will see your credit score rise. Using your debit card does not do anything to your credit score, but using a credit card does do that. So call them and find out about their financial products. They want to help you to get your piece of the American dream. Team Hochberg at 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID. Can you imagine only needing 1% down to get a home in, in the United States? They figured out a way for you. Call them today at 855-56-DAVID or go to 56david.com. But I find that when you talk to people... 
you can get so much more. Call them today. Everybody, let's talk about Biden's frustrations, his frustrations uh, by his dismal poll numbers. He is looking at his staff and he's saying, what are you going to do? And the question is, what can you do? John Nichols comes up at the bottom of the hour. His latest piece in uh, in the in the nation is Biden's decision to skip New Hampshire is political malpractice. Grassroots Democrats can save him with a write-in right campaign, but avoiding this battleground state, avoiding these, uh, avoiding these, uh, these debates, y'all, that is not smart. And we'll have to see what Dean Phillips is going to do. You never know in politics and like like life. Don't. Count your eggs, count your chickens before they hatch, because you just don't know. We've got Leslie Williams from Jewish Voice for Peace, who's saying she's not an expert. She's sounding like one to me, and everyone becomes an expert when you get in that polling booth. How about that piece? Uh, Dr. David Gibbs from, I'm serious, Dr. David Gibbs from, uh, of course, historian from the University of Arizona, and, of course, brilliant civil rights attorney and voting rights attorney, uh, Attorney Daryl Jones, chairman of the Transformative Justice Coalition. You were making a point during the break, Leslie. Well, yeah. Um, you know, we were talking about um, Dr. King and how after he made the speech at Riverside Baptist Church about Vietnam, about how um, he began to lose influence, lose popularity. And, um, you know, I think well, he'd one been thing losing it before. He'd been, I, well, he'd, just, yeah, he'd, he'd been losing it before. He'd been losing it before, but this was like the nail in the coffin. That was like the watershed, right? Oh, yeah. um, he, couldn't, but I, he couldn't get into pulpits. He was thinking of leaving the movement and trying to become president of Morehouse. Mm-hmm. He said, maybe mm-hmm. I'm in the way, you know. Yes. But I think one thing that um, is really critical to understand about what's going on now, and this is something that I talked about a bit the last time on your show, is the strong connection between African Americans and Palestinians and really between several minority groups in the United States and Palestinians. Um, so African-Americans, you know, first of all, there, uh, the most recent polls show that um, as opposed to black support for Biden being at 90 percent in 2020, it's only at about 63 percent right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the black church PAC has said that they are not sure yet if they are going to endorse him in the upcoming election. And that is amazingly significant. But um, ever since the Ferguson to Palestine movement, we've seen connections between um, African-Americans protesting against police violence and Palestinians protesting against Israeli Israeli violence in their communities. And this goes all the way back to um, the late stages of the civil rights movement when African-Americans saw the Palestinian cause as part of the global movement of people of color against European colonialism. And I think that's often overlooked. And also, I mean, obviously, Arab Americans, Palestinian Americans, Muslim Americans feel a strong connection to Palestinians. But many Latino groups do as well. They feel the same connection with a group of people who are frequently kicked off their land. Native Americans, this Thanksgiving, several Native Americans uh, held a day of recognition of indigenous people and included Palestine and specifically called out Palestine as a fellow, Palestinians as a fellow group of people who were being pushed off their land by colonialists. So there's this growing coalition of different groups of people of color that have traditionally been strong supporters of the Democratic Party. 
um, who are very angry right now and feeling very disillusioned and as though they don't really have a place to go in this upcoming election. Uh, and people are also and saying you're not going to like, tell them and you're not going to tell them you're not going to frighten them with Trump. That, that's not happening. You know, I mean, I think you, what a lot of them feel is, are you really any better than Trump yeah. for us? And um, are we going to continue to throw a group of our siblings under the bus by saying, well, you know, um, at least it's better than Trump. So Palestinians, too bad. We're, we're just going to forget about you. And I think more and more, a lot of these younger people, particularly young people of color, are not going to do that. And they're also saying, how is it that you can find $14 billion to send to fight the war in Israel, but you can't find enough money for healthcare in the United States or for education in the United States, but you're suddenly able to pull out $14 billion to send to Israel. I mean, I think that's also a strong message that has got a lot of young people extremely angry. Well, absolutely. Bronco Malkatich joins us, and I'm so glad that you're with us. I was reading some of your writings on, uh, well, just Responsible Statecraft, which is like one of my favorite news outlets. But, of course, he's a staff writer for Jacobin. I love them. I am a subscriber. Yes, I am. He's a Goodman Institute fellow in These Times magazine and the author of, oh, boy, Yesterday's Man. The case against Joe Biden. Should we begin there? Oh, I mean, some people are saying that it's the Middle East that is doing Joe Biden in. He's certainly on his staff's back. But you're saying that, you know, the U.S. You know, is taking a massive global hit over their standing in Israel. and Americans feel negative about Biden's economy because there's a lot to feel negative about. I mean, Dr. Bronco? Talk to me. You, I, that's right, Leslie, all of you are doctors today, along with uh, Dr. David Gibbs, who's a legit doctor. <laughs> Tell me, look at this patient. And you've already done that with your book. What's going on? Because he is upset with his staff right now. He's very warm with them. He's like, come on, you guys. Make, make this happen. Can they? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, struck by that recent Washington Post piece um, that talked about some of the kind of behind-the-scenes uh, reactions to Biden's poor polling. I think it opens with um, Biden telling his staff, you know, that he's dismayed by his poll numbers, number one, and then basically tasking them to figure out what he needs to do uh, to, to, to get them back. And to me, it, it, it points to a, a White House that is just very out of touch with what is going on in the country. I mean, you hear it constantly on, on cable news and, you know, among Biden strategists that talk to the press about what his uh, strategy for 2024 is. And the thing you constantly hear is that they believe that their uh, ticket to victory is um, basically uh, uh, telling people that, uh, how great things are, that, that people just don't really know how much Biden has accomplished. That's the reason why his poll numbers are so bad. And I think it completely uh, uh, ignores the, the many, many statistics we have. If you look outside of things like GDP, if you look outside of things like unemployment, um, which, which are good, but those only tell part of the story of this economy. Uh, you know, uh, 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 there's, we just saw the other day that homelessness in the United States has dramatically risen. Uh, the past year, I think 12%, uh, very, very big jump. Uh, we had a report earlier this year that, that child poverty made a historic leap as well. You've got uh, rents 
at, uh, at record highs around the country. You've had evictions uh, rising to uh, uh, higher than their pre-pandemic level. Um, you've also got food insecurity, which is higher this year than it has been for the last few years. Um, I mean, these are just a few a few statistics I'm throwing out, um, but there's so many. Uh, what it what it suggests is that even though you know on the, the on the grand scale, if you look at the big picture, yes, the economy is doing well. It's the same problem as it was uh, under Trump, and it's the same problem that you had under Obama when the economic recovery was happening, which is that, yes, the economy can be doing well, but how is it being distributed? I mean, is, it, is, is are those gains actually being meted out equally? And I think the, uh, the, the clear answer is no. Um, so, you know, you've got the economic picture. Um, you've got, you know, Biden not really running on anything. He's not really, you know, his Build Back Better bill, which is meant to be the centerpiece of his entire presidency, and his FDR-style ambitions. That died. There appears to be no attempt to revive it. Biden barely mentions the very popular provisions that were in it um, when he's been on the campaign uh, trail. It's mostly about you know how how well his presidency has gone and, and and the bills that he has passed. There's no promise to sort of continue the fight to to, to pass some of these things that didn't happen in his first term. Um, and meanwhile, as you say, yeah, the the, the uh, situation in Gaza just is there's on the political level, there's no upside for Biden here, not getting any Republican votes for his uh, very close uh, uh, you know, bear-hugging of Netanyahu and this government and, and uh, giving them a green light to do whatever. Meanwhile, he is alienating large portions of his base, uh, uh, not just young people, but also Arab-American and Muslim-American voters in key states. Um, and then there was a, a recent poll. Uh, uh, the, I mean, they've been doing polls throughout this period, but, but the Arab Barometer Survey, that they looked at attitudes in Tunisia, which is a fairly pro-Western uh, country, but, but uh, nevertheless uh, tends to kind of be a bit of a bellwether for the entire uh, region, for, for, for the Middle East, the wider Middle East. And they found that this war uh, and new support for it has actually done more damage the standing of the United States uh, there has for Israel. Um, and, I, and, and basically they say, you know, if you look at, at, at how previous trends have gone, you can extrapolate this probably to the wider Middle East. So overall, I think, you know, the, the, there are a lot of bad decisions being made in this White House that are not just bad for the United States, but also bad for Biden's presidency. And the fact that they don't know or they can't tell what is going wrong for them, I think speaks to a real uh, uh, detachment from, from things on the ground in this country. Well, let's go back to your book, The Case Against Joe Biden. Make a connection, please. Well, you know, I, I, I tried to warn people <laughs> in advance of, of the, uh, the primaries that, that, look, Biden... Whatever you, however you feel about him as a as a personality, uh, he uh, has a very he has a, a, a political career that is, is pockmarked with um, all sorts of red flags. Uh, you know, he's a he's a not not just a conservative Democrat, but he's someone who has uh, always kind of very willingly uh, uh, taken the path of least resistance. As a politician, he's someone who, uh, rather than fight or challenge uh, the right, he tends to, to to try and find accommodation with them. Uh, you know, the, 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 his biggest legislative accomplishments in the Senate 
over his you know thirty five or so uh, years in that institution uh, were actually right wing ones. It was things like the crime bill, and it was uh, it was things like you know making uh, uh, sentences for drugs much tougher. Uh, it, it was not really progressive victories. And I think, you know, aside from the... Uh, there, there have been some bright spots. I don't want to totally uh, paint his administration as devoid of accomplishments. I think the stimulus, obviously, they passed in 2021 was huge. I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan was really important. And I think parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, parts of it, uh, are important. But also, a lot of what he's passed has kind of has, has, has been sort of, uh, you know, traditional uh, uh, Republican uh, kind of uh, uh, aims. I mean, people forget that the infrastructure bill that he, that he passed. That mm-hmm. that was originally kind of uh, a Trump idea, uh, especially, you know, paying for it by basically privatizing uh, uh, or outsourcing large parts of uh, of American infrastructure to, to Wall Street to, you know, slap on all sorts of fees and, and that kind of thing on there. That, that was a Trump uh, uh, bill initially. That was very heavily criticized. Uh, well, you, know, um, you know, unfortunately, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, I mean, because I, I think, I didn't know what you were about to say, unfortunately, because I think that many of us forget just how centrist or so really how far to the right he is in the party itself. I mean, coming on, you know, with his, his support of the police, anti-busing and all of that. And everybody gets upset with me, Bronco, when I, when I mention these things. But I'm like, but this is a guy who we put on, someone who was really struggling four years ago, and he struggled in 1988. I mean, he's, he's always had a tough time as a presidential candidate. I mean, mastered the Senate, right? But the presidency, the, the mastery of it has somehow eluded him, Bronco. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's worth knowing in, in pretty much every Senate campaign, aside from his first one, uh, Biden won by, by constantly lurching to the right of his uh, Republican opponent. That that was a strategy. Um, when it comes to the presidency, he has not yeah, fared particularly well. I mean, if the, the, the 2020 election, obviously, uh, is, is, is a, an exception. But, but from what I read about what Biden world people are telling themselves, you know, that they... In their view, that the reason Biden won in 2020 was because he was so underrated and, and he had these particular political strengths as a candidate that no one saw coming. To me, that's a complete rewriting of history. I mean, people forget the number one that, that Barack Obama involved himself in the Democratic primary, moved heaven and earth basically to make Biden. Um, uh, the the only challenger uh, to Bernie Sanders and to basically consolidate the centrist vote around him. Um, you know, Biden you got the very diplomat. lucky. Um, you, you're the diplomat. They, put, they pushed Bernie. Out the <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> stay right Definitely. there. Okay, let me let, I, let me go to this break. We're going to bring up John Nichols, but you stay right there. Look, I'll say it. They pushed they pushed Bernie out the race, and this is the most popular elected official in the United States today. That was what you call dumb. Yeah, I said it, and I'm not being diplomatic about it, because look at the mess that we're in right now. Trump is being fast-tracked to the White House. But that has me upset, really. <laughs> Stay right here on the Santita Jackson Show. Bronco, don't you leave yet. Don't you dare leave. Stay right there. John Nichols coming up back in just a minute. We can change the 
This is the Santita Jackson Show. Oh boy, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. Of course, John Nichols is here with us as he is every Tuesday at this time. And his uh, Nation magazine article is, uh, wow, it's, it's, it's a wonderful piece. It, it's, really, it's really provocative. It's Thought-provoking, Biden's decision to skip the New Ham- to skip New Hampshire's political malpractice. Ouch! So we're going to be talking about that as we're talking about Biden for Biden's frustrations with his staff, with his top-tier staff, campaign and White House staff, about his low poll no- polling numbers. But we've been trying to analyze uh, how we got here, and there are reasons why we are where we are with him. Uh, Cornell West is saying that he should have an LBJ moment and and leave the race maybe in the spring. Do you think that's going to happen? Mm. Call us at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Of course, we've got Leslie Williams from Jewish Voice for Peace giving us some excellent analysis, I must say. Uh, Attorney Daryl Jones, excellent analysis from everyone here on this panel. Transformative Justice Coalition Chair and, of course, Dr. David Gibbs, a brilliant uh, historian from the University of Arizona. And we have been so excited to have Bronco Marcatiche from In These Times and Jacobin Magazine. I urge you to support those magazines because they really give us some of the best reporting that is out here. And as we're joined by, uh, by uh, this heretic, also known as my friend and brother beloved, uh, John Nichols. <laughs> Before I get to you, John Nichols, I th- Dr. Gibbs was asking a really uh, thought-provoking question of Bronco. Dr. Gibbs? Uh, yes. Well, um, one of the things that um, you know, we've been talking about on this show for many months now, and uh, you know, Bronco uh, has been writing about for, for a while as well, is the Ukraine war. And the... Um, you know, with with critiques of how this war basically um, is as um, as reflected very poorly on the Biden administration. That uh, opportunities for peace were passed by. Uh, the war was escalated uh, very foolishly by the Biden administration. And uh, one of the things we're seeing now is possibly the end game in Ukraine, where Ukraine very well may lose the war outright uh, after you know hundreds of thousands of deaths and. Um, you know, all of this uh, is going to look very bad for the Biden administration. At least that's how it's looking to me. And I'm wondering how Bronco and other people on this panel feel this may affect the uh, election campaign. Um, I'm just wondering if we see uh, substantial setbacks in the battlefield or even a disintegration of the Ukrainian army, which is a possibility over the next 10 months. Um, you know, this could be a huge black eye for Biden since this has been touted as his major foreign policy accomplishment up till now. That combined with the Gaza war, the disastrous Gaza war, combined with the setbacks with the economy and all the other problems he's facing, uh, that could pose a very serious challenge to his reelection. I'm wondering what other people think about that, that possibility. Well, let me start with you, Bronco, and then, you know, we, I mean, I want John to pick this up as he talks about that, because we, like, it's hard to believe we're inside of five weeks before New Hampshire, and all of this is relevant, because these are the things that people are talking about in New Hampshire. People don't have to declare a party, everybody. They just jump in, and they tell you who they like. So, Bronco, why don't you answer? 
uh, or, you know, I mean, just speculate even with, uh, with respect to the question that Dr. Gibbs just posed? Yeah, I mean, it's a very uh, plausible uh, scenario. Um, I think if that happened, it would be, uh, you know, very bad for his campaign. I mean, just think about how uh, the the kind of negative portrayal, the the the, the bad scenes coming out of the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, you know, dealt this kind of permanent black eye to Biden's presidency. Um, that was probably the the one single event that he got the most um, uh, terrible publicity on, you know, it was overwhelmingly negative media coverage. And I think if, if you know, Russia does indeed decide to to try and uh, use this opportunity to, to, to roll over the, the Ukrainian forces, um, you know, scenes of Russia seizing territory and, you know, uh, uh, Ukrainian forces kind of fleeing, I think would be very, very bad for, for Biden because he staked so much of his presidency on this. I mean, remember the, the first ad, I believe, they put out for this presidential campaign um, uh, heavily about his support for the uh, Ukrainian war effort. Uh, secondly, I mean, I think even without um, without all that, um, and, I, and by the way, I, w- I would add, this is this is exactly why people like myself were, but for a long time, saying that diplomacy should be being pursued by the Biden administration, that they should be trying to get um, uh, Russia at the negotiating table when, when you know there was actually uh, inclination from Moscow that they did want to negotiate earlier this year and, and last year. That part of the reason was because it was entirely predictable that the GOP um, at one point would say, you know what, this war is too expensive. We don't want to keep funding this. And this is exactly what's happened. I mean, this is, you know, anyone with even a passing knowledge of U.S. politics could have guessed that, that what we're seeing now uh, would have happened. But, you know, put aside all that, I mean, I would also say that the, the, the funding for the Ukraine war, I think, has already had a um, an effect on Biden's re-election chances. Remember, he came to office with this promise of a foreign policy for the middle class. And, and what that broadly meant was the U.S. was not going to any longer you know, spend uh, rules of money on foreign wars, uh, get itself entangled in all these conflicts overseas. Uh, instead, uh, uh, the Biden administration would pursue a foreign policy that, that, that was, uh, had the, the interests of basically American workers uh, at its heart. Um, and that has not happened ever since, you know, I would say basically the start of this war and, 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 and going up until today with Biden's support for what's happening in, in uh, Gaza, which is, you know, uh, untold amounts of money have been going overseas. At the same time, the U.S. is unable to um, find money for things like uh, COVID relief and, and, you know, unable to pass large parts of Biden's uh, agenda, supposedly because it's too expensive, money constantly seems to be able to be found um, to be to, to send, you know, for the purpose of waging foreign wars. Uh, and I warned a year ago that, you know, this is exactly the thing that led to Trump being reelected. Trump was constantly saying that money was being sent overseas instead of being spent on, on the welfare of Americans. Um, and you've seen people saying that outright. There was there was some polling, I believe, by NBC not too long ago. They talked about uh, uh, young and, and, and African-American voters. And they quoted someone saying, basically, like, you know, look, look at all the money that's, that's being found that's going to all these other countries. Why... Why is that not money being spent on us? 
you had the the mayor of East Palestine, if people remember that, where the the, the terrible train derailment happened and there was a horrible, uh, basically, environmental disaster. The the mayor of that town, um, you know, complained that, that Biden actually never came to East Palestine, uh, but he did. Uh, as this disaster was going on, he did go to Kiev. Um, and so I think these criticisms that, that, that Biden has basically abandoned this foreign policy for the middle class and, and appears to be more interested in the welfare of people uh, abroad than Americans. I mean, you, know, you, can, you can argue whether or not that's fair, but I think that is a perception that exists among, you know, a, 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 a you know, fairly broad swath of, of voters. And that's going to be a challenge, I think, for him to, to, to try and uh, overcome. John Nichols, pick it up from there. I mean, because now we're at the primary season where American voters are at last after four years, well, two years, really four years for the presidential piece, are about to speak. And you're saying that his decision, Biden's decision to skip New Hampshire, and I certainly want others on the panel to weigh in on this because I thought that this was so compelling. You're calling this political malpractice. What do you mean, political malpractice? That's really strong, John. Well, I'm not alone. Political malpractice. Uh, one of the president's top supporters, uh, Ro Khanna, the congressman from California, who really is, by many measures, a right are in the Democratic Party, uh, said that same phrase. In fact, uh, he and I have talked about it quite a bit. Khanna has actually gone to New Hampshire as a Biden supporter and campaigned on his behalf because he is so concerned that Joe Biden is skipping New Hampshire. Now, people need to understand why Biden's skipping New Hampshire. Um, he has run for president before and lost. This is, you know, he's been running for president in many senses since the mid-1980s. Uh, and New Hampshire has never been a, a good state for him. And so as president, he has immense power, and he worked with the DNC to shift the primary process to begin in South Carolina. And they made a good argument for that. They said, look, um, you know, South Carolina is more diverse than New Hampshire, and it is. Um, but the problem with going to South Carolina is that South Carolina is not a swing state. South Carolina will vote Republican in November. Um, and so if they really wanted to go to a more diverse state, they would have gone to Michigan or to Nevada or to Georgia. Um, but they went to South Carolina because, frankly, President Biden thought he'd have a very safe route there. The mistake they made was to assume that New Hampshire would accept this. And New Hampshire did not. New Hampshire officials scheduled a January 23 primary parallel to the Republican primary. And Joe Biden has officially skipped it. His name will not be on the ballot. But the names of Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson and other candidates will be. Those other candidates are campaigning there. At the same time, Republicans are campaigning there. They're all over New Hampshire, and they're grabbing the headlines. So what I wrote about is the concern on the part of New Hampshire Democrats. Remember, New Hampshire's in a swing state. It matters in November. On the part of New Hampshire Democrats, that Biden's not there, and that the image is terrible. Um, well, wh- why? Why? Why isn't he there? Wh- who made that well, decision? It's, it's got to come from Biden, because, remember, a president controls the national committee of his party or her party. Oh, yeah. In this case, Biden has control over the DNC. Biden wanted the DNC to change the schedule so that New Hampshire would not go first. But he and his political advisors and people on the DNC miscalculated because New Hampshire, whether they like it or not, is going to hold a primary on January 23rd. Biden's not going to be there. 
And in New Hampshire, Biden supporters are working very, very hard to do a write-in campaign. But you know how hard a write-in campaign is in. It is in, in any state. And so you end up in a situation where Biden has a self-inflicted wound. He has chosen not to start the process in the same place where the Republicans are starting the process. So on January 23rd, the headline is going to be some Republican wins New Hampshire. And it could be, not saying it will be, but it could be that Biden is embarrassed in New Hampshire, that 30, 40 percent of people vote for other candidates up there. Um, and that's, that's not something that had to happen, right? He could have, have done that. And the reason I wrote the article was not to talk about New Hampshire. I mean, New Hampshire is a frame for it. The real reason I wrote about it is the argument that Joe Biden is not really putting together a very smart campaign. He's not starting um, early. He's not taking advantage of the primary process. He is not physically present in the places where he needs to be present on a very regular basis. I mean, maybe he'll go to South Carolina, but South Carolina is not going to be a swing state in November. And so at the end of the day, what I'm arguing is that Joe Biden, by skipping New Hampshire, sends a very powerful and I think pretty painful signal about the the kind of fluidity, the calculus of this campaign. And it's something people ought to be concerned about. And again, I'm not alone in saying this. The people I interviewed for this piece, uh, national folks and folks in New Hampshire, very savvy people who pre- cover and follow presidential politics closely, are very strong in saying this is a mistake and it's a bad mistake. Well, I mean, it is a it's a huge mistake, but I'm just trying to find out what is he thinking? What is he thinking? No, I mean, well, I think the, that- I, the word, words fail me because I've seen him run. You know, we have seen him run up close and personal, run for president in in the mid '80s. That did not work out well for him at all. Um, Didn't work well in 2008 either. It at all. And Although running as vice president, they they had to try to yeah. mute him. So, I mean, when he gets onto the president, when he's in the Senate, he's great. But when he gets onto these presidential stages, it's like, oh, no. Well, and I'm yeah. just trying to figure out what the, thi- what the political calculation is, because you need every vote, John. You can't afford to alienate people. And here's the deal. This is what I'd say. I've covered Joe Biden um, in many senses for many decades and seen him in, in a lot of settings. I don't agree with the Republican calculus or even the criticism by some very wise folks that he's a gas machine or that he makes all sorts of mistakes when he's out on the trail. He does. He makes the same mistakes that many candidates do. And you, when you say a million words a day, you're going to screw up a little bit. I think the problem for Biden is a lack of presence, right? It's not physically being there where he needs to be. He is a president running for re- he is down in the polls. His approval ratings are poor. Um, he should be either campaigning aggressively, right, going out there, doing what's necessary to raise those approval ratings, to, to reach out to people, to make connections, to frame out a 2024 campaign that is distinct from his past campaign. That is saying, look, I want another term because here is what I want to do. Here are the things I know domestically that have to be done. And he should be talking about that a lot so that people are hearing him, seeing him. And he's not. He is is most days hunkered down in the White House or off, you know, 
at Camp David or whatever. And you know, I'm sure he's working very hard. I have no doubt of that. But remember, a president is not just a manager. A president's job is not just to, you know, come in in the morning and look at all the reports and, you know, talk to all the, the people and make sure, you know, this, the I is dotted and that T is crossed. A president's job is also to be a leader. And in an election year, the president's job is to be the leader of his or her party. And my suggestion here is that by skipping a key primary and by not really showing himself during the primary process, and certainly at the level that he should, Joe Biden is seeding the first half of the year to the Republican. He is essentially saying the dynamism is on your side. You get to make the noise. You get to be seen. Now, admittedly, many of these Republicans are messes, right? They, the, the more they are seen, the more many folks will say, boy, I don't want that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they are the dynamic force. They're the ones who are seen. Biden on the sidelines. This cannot be the direction this goes. If it is, then the conversation you were just having becomes very, very relevant. Because then, as somebody who's not defining out a forward vision, who doesn't have real control over this process, um, Biden becomes very, very vulnerable to the disastrous development. And remember in 1968, you talk about, you know, suggesting that, that Biden might do a Johnson move, where on you know, March 31st, he goes on television on a Sunday night and announces he's not running for re-election. That's what Johnson did in 68. Well, remember what happened in 68 before that. Johnson was confronted by the Tet Offensive, which showed that a war he had committed to in a very major way was, in fact, going wrong. It was going bad, um, parallel that to Ukraine. And then he went into New Hampshire. And in New Hampshire, he actually won but he didn't win big enough, and he didn't campaign in New Hampshire in the way that he should have. And so he was seen as having a setback there, and mm. that then stabilized him politically. When you know that history, right, then you get to Johnson quitting the race. And here's the really scary thing for people who maybe don't want Donald Trump to be president. Johnson quit the race, handed it off to his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who went on to lose. And... And, you know, I can guarantee you as somebody as a historian of politics, if Johnson had stayed in the race, he probably would have won. Right. But mm -hmm. he was so dispirited, so, you know, beaten down and so unwilling to change direction. Right. As regards Vietnam, that he exited the race. It was a disaster for the Democratic Party. In many ways, I would argue a disaster for the country. Um, and so Biden, in my view, is setting himself up for this sort of situation. Maybe it won't happen. Maybe it won't. Maybe Ukraine will turn out well. Maybe New Hampshire will turn out well. Maybe Biden coasts through and everything goes the way that the Biden people apparently within the White House imagine. But what, what, what if I'm right? What if, what if there's even a 10% chance that Ukraine goes bad, that New Hampshire produces an embarrassing result, that ensuing primaries are problematic, and Biden finds himself in an even more vulnerable point than he is in at this point. I mean, Why? in politics, you, you don't take those kind of gambles. I mean, that is That's what, particularly exactly. in times like these. Stay right there. I want to bring on Andre to give a comment before you give a closing thought. Andre, you've been holding for a minute. I please thank you for indulging us. I wanted to. We want to hear from you, though. 
got about 90 seconds yeah, for your comment you. or question. Thank you, sweetie. Yeah, good morning, Santita. Thank you. Uh, no, I was just listening. But I just wanted to weigh in on some of these young voters. Uh, what I do more, excuse me, what I do more about the young voters is a lot of them don't understand civics and how the branches of government function. And in order for them to, to be upset about what they're not getting, they first need to understand why they are not getting it and how to go about getting it. First, the president, the executive orders can only go so far. But secondly, it takes a majority. In some cases, it takes 60 votes to get things passed, legislation passed. And you need to control the House and the Senate for certain things. So right now, Joe Biden may want to do certain things, but he doesn't have the votes. Thirdly, voting rights have been under attack. Once these young people understand the obstacles in their way and what's stopping them from getting what they want, they should become more involved. They should vote and they should work to elect a House and a Senate that gives the votes to the president to accomplish more of these needs, that, that, the needs that they have. If the media was fair, they would tell these young people this and not lead them, let, lead them astray uh, after all of the media is supposed to inform and not share by a poll that are designed to set a Andre, let's not make the, let's not make the presumption that these, that these young people are not politically savvy. They really have a real understanding uh, Not to just that they are. No, no, no. I'm just saying they understand the importance of the elections at the federal, state, local, county levels, they are unwilling to compromise in many ways that we have been willing to. Because, you know, they're, they're, I mean, because these, these kids, they've grown up with a black president. They've grown up with, with women, women being on the ticket. They're over all of that. The firsts, the onlys, they're done. Now they want some. They want some deliverables. Stay right there, John. You've got the last two minutes. You heard. I mean, because Andre's making a, a compelling argument for what a lot of people say, but these young people are not hearing that. Yeah, well, Andre's exactly right. You know, there's no question. He, he's he's exactly right. Things are complicated, right? Things are are much more complex than than much of our media communicates, than much of our political class communicates. That doesn't matter. So if if you take the, the the hand that you're dealt from the deck, and the hand that we've been dealt from the deck um, is, or not we, but that Biden's been dealt from the deck, is one where his approval ratings are at record lows, largely because of a, a deep slippage of support among young people, but also other constituencies within his coalition. Um, he is in many polls, not all, but in many polls, trailing Donald Trump in battleground states. Uh, and in fact, if Nikki Haley were somehow to beat Trump, which I don't think will happen, she's even more ahead. And so Joe Biden, like it or not, is in a vulnerable place. He's president of the United States. He has a lot of power. But as again, I argue in the article, big article on New Hampshire that we've got as the nation, um, he isn't doing the things that a president in a difficult circumstance would logically do. Because again, as I said before, Maybe everything turns out all right. But what if what if it doesn't? If there if there is a vulnerability, why not address it? Why skip the first major primary? Why have a you know kind of dot down primary strategy? Why not be out there in the same states where the Republicans are, standing strong, delivering a message for the twenty first century, talking about winning not just the presidency, but getting a Congress you can work with. It's that's what I'm talking about. But the president himself has to use his bully pulpit 
And as I argue in the article, I don't think he is. I think he is ceding territory to the Republicans, not willingly, not intentionally, but it is the case. He is ceding territory to the Republicans at a time when people are starting to focus on presidential politics. That is a very, very dangerous thing to do politically. And you wonder who is giving him this kind of advice and why is he following it? He is a senior politician, someone who's been in politics for more than 50 years. He has to... Some of this has to fall on him, right? I mean, oh, no, if no, 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 no. I'm not saying it shouldn't should fall on him. Oh. oh, I know. Oh, yeah. But if he's oh, bad yeah. advice, he should, advisors, he should say to his advisors, this is bad advice. You know, but he, but he should, should be talking to people who've run for president before, and he should be talking to some of the folks who beat him. So yep. he can get, and, so he can get some, well, you I, know, just stay right I, there. I got to get off. I, I got to get off. I got a heart out. Love you, everybody. Alex, thank you for a great show. Going to get some closing thoughts from everybody right here on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel. Love everybody. Have a great one.